In the early months of 1817, workers' meetings in Manchester, Stockport and the surrounding towns became more and more frequent, as did the reports of these meetings that were sent to the Home Office by the government's and magistrates' spies. At Bibby's Rooms, a disused spinning shed in the back streets of Manchester, John Bagley, a radical and charismatic orator still in his teens, and his fellows Joseph Johnson and Samuel Drummond, addressed meetings of 3,000 or more. The idea of a march to London was proposed, and a meeting called for March the 10th at St. Peter's Field, the site of the Peterloo Massacre two years later. Harriet Martineau was arguably Britain's first sociologist. A prolific author, she published her account of Peterloo in 1849 in her history of the Thirty Years' Peace that followed the Battle of Waterloo. Martineau takes up the story in March 1817, when Home Secretary Lord Sidmouth, fearing revolution, ordered the suspension of habeas corpus, a measure in English law that limited the powers of the authorities to imprison its subjects without trial. The Habeas Corpus Suspension Act was passed on the 3rd of March. The bill for restraining seditious meetings did not become law till the 29th of March. Within a week after the passing of the Act for Imprisonment without trial, and before the magistrates had received any accession to their power as to the dispersion of tumultuous assemblies, an occurrence took place at Manchester, which was at once evidence of the agitated condition of distressed multitudes in the manufacturing districts, and of the extreme weakness of their purposes. This was the famous march of the Blanketeers. And yet, when the renewed suspension of the Habeas Corpus Act was proposed in June, the report of the secret committee entered into minute detail of this senseless project as one of the arguments for tampering again with the liberties of the whole kingdom. A plain and honest account of this affair is given by Samuel Bamford. According to his narrative, William Benbow, the shoemaker, had taken a great share in getting up and arranging a vast meeting, subsequently called the Blanket Meeting, for the purpose of marching to London to petition the Prince Regent in person. Bamford himself wholly condemned the measure. He deprecated the blind zeal of those who had proposed it. He believed they were instigated by those who would betray them. Up to this time, the maxim of the reformers had been, hold fast by the laws. New doctrines now began to be broached, which, if not in direct violation of the law, were ill-disguised subterfuges for its evasion. The blanket meeting, however, took place in St. Peter's Field at Manchester. It consisted, according to Bamford, of four or five thousand operatives, according to the second report of the Lord's Secret Committee of ten or twelve thousand. Many of the individuals, says Bamford, were observed to have blankets, rugs, or large coats, rolled up and tied knapsack-like on their backs, some carried bundles under their arms, some had papers, supposed to be petitions, rolled up, and some had stout walking-sticks. The magistrates came upon the field and read the riot act. The meeting was dispersed by the military and constables, Three hundred commenced a straggling march, followed by a body of yeomanry, and a hundred and eighty reached Macclesfield at nine o'clock at night. Some were apprehended, some lay in the fields. The next morning the numbers had almost melted away. 
about a score arrived at leek and six only were known to pass ashbourne bridge more terrible events however were in preparation according to the second report of the lord's secret committee it was on the night of the thirtieth of march that a general insurrection was intended to have commenced at manchester the magistrates were to be seized the prisoners were to be liberated the soldiers were either to be surprised in their barracks or a certain number of factories were to be set on fire for the purpose of drawing the soldiers out of their barracks of which a party stationed near them for that object were then to take possession with a view of seizing the magazine this atrocious conspiracy was detected by the vigilance of the magistrates and defeated by the apprehension and confinement of some of the ringleaders a few days before the period fixed for its execution bamford records that on the day after the blanket meeting a man dressed much like a dyer came to him at middleton to propose that in consequence of the treatment which the blanketeers had received at the meeting and afterwards a moscow of manchester should take place that very night bamford and his friends dismissed him with the assurance that he was the dupe of some designing villain the scheme which this dupe or scoundrel propounded was exactly that described in the lord's report but there were men who did not receive this proposal with disgust and suspicion as those of middleton did the avowed reform leaders delegates and hampton club men were under perpetual terror some wandered from their homes in dread of imprisonment others were seized in the bosom of their families public meetings were at an end the fears and passions of large bodies of men had no safety valve open meetings thus being suspended secret ones ensued they were originated at manchester and assembled under various pretexts their real purpose divulged only to the initiated was to carry into effect the night attack on manchester the attempt at which had before failed for want of arrangement and cooperation a little while after this moscow proposal a co-delegate came to bamford to propose the assassination of all the ministers we know that this scheme smouldered for several years the fact was says bamford this unfortunate person in the confidence of an unsuspecting mind as i believe had during one of his visits to london formed a connection with oliver the spy which connection during several succeeding months gave a new impulse to secret meetings and plots in various parts of lancashire yorkshire and derbyshire and ended in the tragedy of brandreth ludlow and turner at derby the course of this tragedy we have now to recount it is the only one of the insurrectionary movements of the manufacturing districts in eighteen seventeen that has left any traces of judicial investigation with the exception of proceedings at york at which all the state prisoners were discharged by the grand jury or acquitted upon trial all the persons connected with the blanket expedition and the expected risings at manchester were discharged before trial for francis bruton the dispersal of the blanketeers meeting set a precedent early on the morning of the tenth crowds of people began to stream into the town by various roads many carrying knapsacks and blankets the instigators of the meeting spoke from improvised hustings in st peter's fields 
the magistrates met in the very same room which they afterwards occupied on the occasion of Peterloo, and having warned the leaders with no result, they called upon the military, as they afterwards did at Peterloo, to disperse the meeting. By a judicious movement of the King's Dragoon Guards, the cart was instantly surrounded, and the constables took the whole of the speakers into custody. No opposition was offered to the cavalry, and the multitude immediately dispersed, the troops giving them free passage. The march of the Blanketeers was then harassed by the mounted troops mentioned above, all the way to Macclesfield, where a number of arrests were made, and this effort of the reformers eventually fizzled out. The circumstances of the meeting should be compared with those of Peterloo, because, as Mr. J. E. Taylor afterwards pointed out, here is to be found the precedent for that novel form of reading the Riot Act, if in either case it were read at all, which was followed on the 16th of August, 1819. Immediately after the blanket meeting, the government set on foot a system of espionage, which greatly embittered those agitating for reform, and was severely criticised in Parliament. Meanwhile, the privileged classes in Manchester and other towns had already met, at the suggestion of the Home Secretary, to consider the necessity of adopting additional measures for the maintenance of the public peace. Thus repressive measures only drove the discontent under to smoulder, and suspicion helped to widen the breach. The principal perpetrators of this policy, afterwards so pointedly anathematised by Shelley, were Lord Sidmouth, the Home Secretary, Eldon, the Lord Chancellor, and Viscount Castlereagh, the Secretary for Foreign Affairs. Less than a year before Peterloo, in September 1818, the dragoons were once more called out to disperse a crowd of turned-out spinners who were attacking a mill in Ancoats. Evidently this was the scene which Mrs. Gaskell had in her mind when picturing the attack on Mr. Thornton's mill in North and South. It must not be forgotten that there was, at the time under consideration, no regular police force available. Nadin, the deputy constable, who figures in the various arrests, was merely the paid official of the antiquated court leet, the so-called Commission of Police, which was under the control of an absurdly unrepresentative committee, will not bear comparison with the watch committees of today. The practice of swearing in special constables was frequently resorted to, but special constables had none of the skill and training in the matter of handling crowds possessed by modern police. The constables sometimes declined to act without military aid, and the magistrates leaned heavily on the support afforded by the troops in their difficulties, and frequently acknowledged their indebtedness to them. It is indeed evident from the history of the Cheshire Yeomanry that when the question of disbanding that regiment was seriously discussed, as it was in the early part of the 19th century, it was overruled by the consideration that the troops were indispensable in dealing with civil disturbances, and the chairman of the sessions, immediately following the meeting of Blanketeers in March 1817, took occasion to say, that the districts most liable to disturbance derived effective military aid from a corps formed in a neighbouring and for the most part tranquil county, and again that the bench would be most happy to further any proposition for forming such a corps in the manufacturing districts. It must not be forgotten that the neighbouring and for the most part tranquil county was an agricultural district, and that the farmers and country squires who rode in its yeomanry had a special interest in preserving intact the Corn Law, which the reformers were out to repeal. 
Although Bamford estimated that there were no more than four to five thousand at the Blanketeers' meeting, it is likely that the number was closer to forty thousand. The meeting was apparently dispersed without casualties, but this may have been no more than a matter of good fortune. Later in the day there were reports from Stockport of the death of an innocent observer by sabre wound and of serious injuries to marchers, either from the swords or horses of the Cheshire Yeomanry. More than 300 marchers were arrested at Stockport and Macclesfield and detained at Chester Castle. Of the meeting's organisers, Johnston was arrested on the day before the meeting and Bagley and Drummond were arrested on the hustings. All three were taken south and detained without trial, Johnston and Drummond to Dorchester, while Bagley was kept in solitary confinement at Gloucester Jail. Samuel Bamford takes up the story on the day following the Manchester meeting. At dusk on the evening of Tuesday the 11th of March, the day after the blanket meeting, a man dressed much like a dyer was brought to my residence by Joseph Healy, who had found him inquiring for me in the lower part of the town. The stranger said he had something of a private and important nature to communicate, in consequence of which I and the stranger and Healy went to the sign of the trumpeter, where we were accommodated with a private room. The man now told us that he was deputed by some persons at Manchester to propose that in consequence of the treatment which the Blanketeers had received at the meeting and afterwards, a Moscow of Manchester should take place that very night. The man paused and looked at us severally. I intimated that I knew what he meant and desired him to go on. He said it would entirely depend on the cooperation or otherwise of the country people, as other messengers had been sent to every reform society within twenty miles of the town as if the answers were favourable to the project, the light of the conflagration was to be the signal for the country people to come in, and in such case the Middleton people were requested to take their station on St George's Field. He said the plan had been arranged by a meeting held at Manchester, that the whole force would be divided into parties, one of which was to engage the attention of the military and draw them from their barracks. Another was to take possession of the barracks and secure the arms and magazine. Another was to plunder and then set fire to the houses of individuals who were marked out. And a fourth was to storm the new bailey and liberate the prisoners, particularly the blanketeers confined there. I said it was a serious thing to undertake and that an answer could not be returned from Middleton until some friends had been consulted. On my rising to go out, the man appeared alarmed and begged I would not betray him. I assured him he had nothing to fear and desired him to stay with Healy until my return, which would be very soon, on which he seemed reconciled to my going. I speedily went to five of my acquaintance, chiefly members of the committee, and desired them to repair immediately to Healy's house where business of importance would be laid before them. I then brought up the stranger and the doctor, and telling the man he might confide in us, he repeated, nearly word for word, what he had said at the trumpeter. I then said I would have nothing to do with the scheme, that it was unlawful, inhuman and cowardly. I told him he appeared to be a simple young fellow, and was probably the dupe of some designing villain. My friends agreed with my opinion, 
both as to the proposal and the instrument who broached it. We bade him, however, not to mistrust us, gave him refreshment and sent him away, more in sorrow for his peril, being persuaded he was in the hands of villains, than of resentment for the decoy he had attempted. We bade him good night, and he went his way. This young man said his name was Samuel Priestley. I observed that he had lost a finger from his left hand. He said he lived at Banktop, Manchester. I afterwards made inquiries respecting him on the spot, but never could hear of such a person in the place or neighbourhood. This statement, however, cannot now injure him. After he was gone, we consulted about this strange message and unknown messenger. We had not heard of the plot before, and though we doubted not that it had been sanctioned, as the man stated, by the Manchester Committee, that circumstance did not increase our confidence. We had no reliance on their sagacity or their integrity as a body. Men who could get up and countenance the blanket expedition had no weight with us. They were, moreover, reported to be under the influence of spies from the police, a suspicion which many circumstances tended to strengthen. The plot itself did the same. The unknown messenger, the precipitation, to be done that very night, the population for twenty miles around an immense town, to be brought upon it by midnight, and then to be divided, apportioned, and set to work by men of whom they knew nothing. The proposal was too absurd, as well as iniquitous, to excite anything save wonder and disgust, even with simple and inexperienced ones like ourselves. Besides, would Major Cartwright have sanctioned such a measure? Certainly not, and then we almost regretted that we had suffered the emissary to depart. Deprived of their leaders, in the following weeks, the remaining radicals and reformers were forced underground. Personal liberty, not being now secure from one hour to another, many of the leading reformers were induced to quit their homes and seek concealment where they could obtain it. Those who could muster a few pounds, or who had friends to give them a frugal welcome, or who had trades with which they could travel, disappeared like swallows at the close of summer, no one knew whither. The single men stayed away altogether. The married ones would occasionally steal back at night to their one-cheeked families, perhaps to divide with them some trifle they had saved during their absence, perhaps to obtain a change of linen or other garments for future concealment, but most of all, as would naturally be the case, to console and be consoled by their wives and little ones. Perhaps one had found an asylum amongst kind friends, and had brought home a little hoard, the fruits of his own industry and carefulness, or of their generosity. Perhaps he had been wandering in want, not daring to make himself known, until his beard disguised him, his shoes and stockings were trampled from his feet, and his linen was in rags, when at length, worn out and reckless, he would venture home, like the wearied bird which found no place to rest. Perhaps he had been discovered to be a reform leader, and had been threatened, mayhap pursued, and like a hunted hare, now returned to the place of former repose. Then he would come home stealthily under cover of darkness, his wife would rush into his arms, his little ones would be about his knees, looking silent pleasure, for they, poor things, like nestling birds, had learned to be mute in danger. 
but with all precautions it did sometimes happen that in such moments of mournful joy the father would be seized, chained and torn from his family before he had time to bless them or to receive their blessings and tears. Such scenes were of frequent occurrence and have thrown a melancholy retrospection over those days. Private revenge or political differences were gratified by secret and often false information handed to the police. The country was distracted by rumours of treasonable discoveries and apprehensions of the traitors, whose fate was generally predicted to be death or perpetual imprisonment. Bagley, Johnson, Drummond and Bembo were already in prison at London, and it was frequently intimated to me, through some very kind relations-in-law, that I and some of my acquaintances would soon be arrested. This sort of information was always brought to Middleton by parties who, being in the manufacturing line, visited Manchester twice or thrice a week for the purpose of disposing of their goods. They appeared to be well acquainted with the movements of the police. They could tell when King's messengers arrived or departed, how many state warrants had been issued, who would be next apprehended, and such like useful and pleasant things, which they always took care to make known in such quarters as made it sure to reach those they wished to render unhappy by anticipation of troubles they could not now avoid. And strange to say, many of their predictions were verified. King's messengers did arrive, government warrants were issued, and the persons they mentioned were taken to prison. A cloud of gloom and mistrust hung over the whole country. The suspension of the Habeas Corpus Act was a measure the result of which we young reformers could not judge, save by report, and that was of a nature to cause anxiety in the most indifferent of us. The prescriptions, imprisonments, trials and banishments of 1792 were brought to our recollections by the similarity of our situation to those of the sufferers of that period. It seemed as if the sun of freedom were gone down and a rayless expanse of oppression had finally closed over us. Cobbett, in terror of imprisonment, had fled to America. Sir Francis Burdett had enough to do in keeping his own arms free. Lord Cochrane was threatened, but quailed not. Hunt was still somewhat turbulent, but he was powerless, for he had lost the genius of his influence when he lost Cobbett, and was now almost like Samson, shorn and blind. The worthy old major remained at his post, brave as a lion, serene as an unconscious child, and also, in the Russian tumult of that time, almost as little noticed. Then, of our country reformers, John Knight had disappeared, Bilkington was out of the way somewhere, Bradbury had not yet been heard of, Mitchell moved in a sphere of his own, the extent of which no man knew save himself, and Kay and Fitton were seldom visible beyond the circle of their own village, whilst to complete our misfortunes, our chapel-keeper, in the very tremor of fear, turned the key upon us and declared we should no longer meet in the place. Our society, thus hopeless, became divided and dismayed. Hundreds slunk home to their looms, nor dared to come out, save like owls at nightfall, when they would perhaps steal through the bypaths, or behind hedges, or down some clough, to hear the news at the next cottage. Some might be seen chatting with and making themselves agreeable to our declared enemies, but these were few, and always of the worst character. Open meetings thus being suspended, 
secret ones ensued. They were originated at Manchester and assembled under various pretexts. Sometimes they were termed benefit societies, sometimes botanical meetings, meetings for the relief of the families of imprisoned reformers or of those who had fled the country. But their real purpose, divulged only to the initiated, was to carry into effect the night attack on Manchester, the attempt at which had before failed for want of arrangement and cooperation. At the end of March, Bamford was arrested in connection with the so-called Ardwick conspiracy, along with seven other radicals. I had reprehended the doctor freely for attending one or two of the private meetings before alluded to, and he had avoided my company during nearly a fortnight, when, on the morning of Saturday, the 29th of March, he suddenly made his appearance at my residence, and, with a woeful look, asked if I had heard of the arrest of the delegates at a private meeting at Ardwick Bridge the night previous. I said I had heard of the transaction. It was only what I had been expecting, and I had offended him by speaking my opinion. He said he wished I would go to his house for a short consultation. I went, and found there one William Elson, who had been connected with one or two of these meetings. They wished for my advice as to what was best to be done under the circumstances. Amongst the persons arrested was John Lancashire, a Middleton man, who had been delegated from a meeting, at which both of my friends, as I understood, had attended. I blamed them for having anything to do with private meetings, and advised them that, they having committed themselves, to leave home for a time, as I had not a doubt the police were in possession of their names and would be after them. Elson, I said, might go anywhere, as he was not much known. Healy, I advised to go to his brother at Bolton and get some money and keep out of sight entirely until something further was known. His best way would be to avoid Manchester and go over Kersal Moor and Agecroft Bridge, and as I had a relation in that quarter who wished to see me, I would keep him company as far as Agecroft. My advice was adopted. Elson went to prepare for his flight, and Healy commenced doing the same. I was now informed that Lancashire had a pike concealed in his house, and I went thither and got that destroyed. On my return, instead of finding Healy ready, he was busy combing his hair and adjusting his neckcloth. I urged him to get away if he valued his life, and after some further delay, I saw him fairly on the road, and then went to prepare myself and in a few minutes I set out after him. We had appointed to meet at Rhodes, Healy taking a circuitous road over Bowley, while I went a nearer, but still in direct way through Alcrington Wood. I was walking towards the churchyard at my usual leisurely but rather swift pace, quite satisfied that Healy was out of all danger of being captured, and without the remotest idea of any peril to myself, when a voice hallooed, and looking back, I beheld Joseph Scott, the deputy constable of Middleton, hastening towards me. I concluded instantly that he wanted me, and disdaining the thought of flying, I returned and met him, and he took hold of me, saying I was the king's prisoner. I asked him what for, and he said I should see presently, and we had not gone many yards on our return, when we were met by Mr Nadine a famous local character of sombre repute, of whom many stories are still told, 
the deputy constable of Manchester, and about six or eight police officers, all well armed with staves, pistols and blunderbusses. Two of these took hold of me, and the whole party marched back to the doctor's house. Here they handcuffed me, and while they searched for the doctor, my wife, in great distress, rushed into the room, and desired to know what I had done amiss that I should be treated in that manner. One of the men had threatened to shoot her at the door, but she rushed past him, and now, while she clung to me distracted and terrified, another would have rudely forced her away, but was rebuked by his superior, which saved him from punishment, and the party probably from the unpleasantness of a street battle with my neighbours. A crowd had collected in front of the house, and when we came out, and were proceeding down the street, there was a shout, and a piece of brick passed near the head of Mr. Nadine, who, probably apprehensive, and not without reason, of a volley, snatched a blunderbuss from one of the men, and facing about, swore dreadfully that he would fire amongst the crowd if another stone was thrown. I turned round and begged they would not commit any violence, for I was willing to suffer for the cause I had espoused. Either from the threat, or my wish, or both, my neighbours paused, and I was conducted to the Ashton Arms public house at the lower end of the town. We stopped here some time, and I had an opportunity for observing the person of my principal captor, Mr Nadine. He was, I should suppose, about six feet one inch in height, with an uncommon breadth and solidity of frame. He was also as well as he was strongly built, upright in gait and active in motion. His head was full-sized, his complexion sallow, his hair dark and slightly grey. His features were broad and non-intellectual, his voice loud, his language coarse and illiterate, and his manner rude and overbearing to equals or inferiors. He was represented as being exceedingly crafty in his business, and somewhat unfeeling withal. But I never heard, and certainly never knew, that he maltreated his prisoners. At times he would indulge in a little raillery with them, possibly from a reason of his own, but I was never led to suppose that he threw away a word of condolement on those occasions. He was certainly a somewhat remarkable person in uncommon times, and acting in an arduous situation. He showed, however, that he had the homely tact to take care of his own interests. He housed a good harvest while his son was up, and retired to spend his evening in ease and plenty on a farm of his own within the borders of Cheshire. On the 5th of April, 1817, a letter from Lord Sidmouth was published in the Manchester Chronicle, thanking the Borough Reeve, the constables, and the loyal inhabitants for their part in heading off the supposed danger to the town. Gentlemen, I should not do justice to my own feelings, or those of my colleagues, were I not to express, without delay, our high sense of the public spirit and firmness which you have manifested under the impending danger which lately threatened the town of Manchester, and of the judicious and decisive measures which were adopted to avert it. Great commendation is also due to the other magistrates, and to the loyal and respectable inhabitants of that town, and more especially to those who acted as special constables on that important occasion. The public tranquillity will not, I earnestly hope, be again endangered, 
but the utmost degree of vigilance and precaution will long continue to be indispensably necessary, and I trust that with this view no doubt can exist of the urgent expediency of resorting to the provisions of the Watch and Ward Act, which could not fail to contribute most essentially to frustrate the designs of the ill-disposed and disaffected, and to afford effectual security to the persons and property of the inhabitants of Manchester. I have the honour to be, gentlemen, your most obedient humble servant, Sidmouth, the Borogreave and Constables, Manchester. The Borogreave and Constables have the satisfaction to know that the magistrates have received from government the strongest expression of approbation in respect of their conduct on the late occasion, but inasmuch as no particular recommendation of future measures appears in the letters to them, it has not been considered necessary to give them publicly. Sidmouth was evidently less than enthusiastic in his praise of the magistrates. In April 1817, four of the detainees, Bamford included, were released on bail as the case against the defendants all but collapsed. Lord Sidmouth was displeased that no evidence of high treason or conspiracy had been found. Writing to the Manchester magistrates, he urged them to take care that in future requests to authorise arrests be accompanied by depositions, stating as fully and precisely as possible the grounds upon which it had been deemed expedient to advise such a measure. So God bless Henry Hunt, me boys, with Henry Hunt we'll go. We'll mount the cap of liberty in spite of Nady Joe.